How do we do ministry in an age when belief is an option? Andy Root is the Carrie Olson Bailson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary and a three-time guest on the podcast. In this interview, Andy talks to us about his newest book, The Pastor in a Secular Age, Ministry to People Who No Longer Need God. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So, Andy, thank you for joining me here um, today. You're here for the Princeton Forum on Youth Ministry. We're glad to have you on campus. Thanks for taking the time to sit down with me and talk about your next book that's coming out this summer. The book we're talking about is entitled uh, The Pastor in a Secular Age, Ministry to People Who No Longer Need a God. But before we get into that conversation, I want to mention that, you know, Sherry Osteen interviewed you in one of our other seasons for the distillery on the previous book, which is Faith Formation in a Secular Age. Can you briefly tell us what's the relationship between the first book and now this new one that's coming out? Yeah, first, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here and be back on campus. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird answer probably to say how they're related because in some ways they are absolutely fused. And in other ways, mm-hmm. they're completely disconnected. Um, eh, completely disconnected maybe is overstated. But where they're connected is they're both really trying to mine the philosophical thought of Charles Taylor and particularly his work in the, in the book a secular age mm-hmm. uh, to try to drive that into context of ministry, thinking of challenges. So it's it's really is a dialogue with with Taylor's work, and also is uh, I think what connects them is a larger theological project that I've been about about since the days I was a student on this campus as, mm-hmm. as a doctoral student, which is to really think about what it would mean or how concretely we encounter the presence of God in the context of ministry, just in our day-to-day lives, raising children, um, uh, living our lives and watching too much TV like me. Like, where, where is it that we modern people encounter the presence of God, which is something that I walked into a conversation going on here through James Loder and others where mm-hmm. how people encounter the the revelation of God or the action of God and this kind of reverberating Bardian perspective of God being an act and a mover in the world has yeah. always captivated my imagination. So these three volumes, of which this one we're talking about is the second, the, the, the move theologically is to really try to get into that. And finding Charles Taylor, his work in the last four or five years mm-hmm. has been a really helpful interpretive lens on what's so difficult about that or why it's at stake. So the first volume, they, they really have no sequential order like faith formation should become before we talk about the identity of the pastor. Mm-hmm. It probably doesn't work that way at all. We yeah. pro- maybe this volume should have been the first one, but that's not how it came out of my so, head. So, um, so people can read them in whatever order they would like. Yeah, that's words, yeah. right. I mean, I wish I could say, you know, they're not, um, they're not the Harry Potter books where you have to yeah. read one after the other. I mean, they should sell like the Harry Potter books. <laughs> Come right. on, people, help me out here. Um, but they, they don't read that way. The way the, the, what I use in the, this just shows how much of a nerd I am. But what I use in the in the, the preface is they're more like the Terminator movies. Yes. You know, like you can watch Terminator Two without watching the original Terminator movie, and um, mm-hmm. you are totally into the liquefied robot. You know, like it all worked for you. It all works. And then when you read the where when you watch the first movie, you're like, oh, okay, now I see what's what's going on here. Good. So they, they, they work that way. So for the person who may not have read Charles Taylor's work, can you just give a brief kind of introduction to what he means by a secular age? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a daunting thing because Taylor 
in this big brick of a book takes over 700 pages to basically mm-hmm. answer that question. And I want you to do it in a few sentences. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. And, and, and I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, I think essentially what Taylor wants to tell is this story of how we get to a secular age. But he thinks the way we kind of knee-jerk reaction think of what it means to live in a secular age, I think particularly those of us who are in theological education and in church life and in particularly mainline denominations, Mm -hmm. we get this wrong. And he does not think what it means to live in a secular age is that fewer people go to church. Um, Now, we're, we're experiencing that. That may be one of the side effects of what it really means to live in a secular age, but it's not the driving problem. The driving problem for him, what it really means to live in a secular age, or when he says in the title of his book, A Secular Age, yeah. the kind of secular he means is that we all inherit and live inside of a world where belief is an option. Yeah. Where we all have neighbors and even people we love who are living very productive, quote unquote, relatively speaking, good lives mm-hmm. and have no interest in God at all. Yeah. So where belief becomes contested, where belief is an option. And for him, especially in his more kind of Catholic overtones, it's what he would call the loss of transcendence. Okay. And he doesn't necessarily mean that as like this loss of this kind of spiritual another, uh, other world, but this sense of a deep ingrained spiritual dynamic to life that orders the political structures, that orders mm-hmm. the way we think about what it means to live a good life, that that's, that's completely optional. And I think this is the world that the pastor inherits. Yeah. Okay, so given that, throughout the book you describe and then you, I think, seek to address in part what you call um, a pastoral malaise that exists today. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, this again, this is the kind of piggyback on Taylor, but he, especially in the in the part three of, of this this huge book, mm-hmm. he, he tries to get into the, he calls this the, the malaise of imminence. He refuses to become a hater of any perspective. So okay. he has questions about modernity and um, a question about what modernity does for us, but he refuses then to say, as some others in, in theological discourse have, like modernity is a bad project and we mm-hmm. need to be done with it. And it's it's given us way more problems than gains and it, it's even an evil structure. He refuses to say that. I mean, he, he really is boldly like, I, he said, I'd, I'd rather live in a modern age than any other age. Yeah. But with that, there also comes some losses. And one of the major malaises for him is this kind of this kind of illness we have as modern people, particularly upwardly mobile middle class people, that we have all this advantage, maybe even all this privilege. And yet there's this kind of nauseousness that we're not really sure what the source of it is. Mm-hmm. And he kind of leads that back to with all the gains you get from modernity, you are in some ways stripped of meaning. Are there rituals in your life? Do those rituals have any meaning? How do you go through the passages of your life? How do you understand kind of the, the well, just, yeah, the overall meaning and the route of your life? Like these things all for some good reasons maybe get hollowed out. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things we can be struck with is just a kind of loss of of meaningfulness. Um, and this isn't new. I mean, Paul Tillich had said things about like this in the, in the, um, in the 1950s uh, mm-hmm. of a loss of meaning. But Taylor really wants to delve deep into that and says that this is one of the 
one of the backlashes or one of the side effects that makes us, it's like taking a medication that we, that we get freed from, say, having to be prodded by a pastor all the time, like in yeah. Jonathan Edwards' day, to live in a certain way, mm-hmm. or having to fear that our children will be possessed by a demon. Like, we get released from all of that, but one of the side effects, like in the commercial, if you take this medication, you could also have yeah. this, this, and this, is that you can be struck with an utterly, utterly meaninglessness of life. Like, what's the point of yeah. all this? And so I try to turn that towards the practice of the pastor okay. and, and uh, even pastoral identity sometimes can be struck with the malaise of what am I doing? Yep. What, what's the point of all of this? Yep. Um, and I, at least my experience with both educating pastors as well as living with a pastor as well as uh, yeah. um, dealing with many local pastors is this is a kind of lurking existential threat that pops up often is what is the point of what I'm doing? doing yeah and i think it's this is a, a real side effect uh, a real ramification of living in this kind of secular age that taylor has described for us so you take in the first kind of part one of the book you walk us through the lives of uh, a few prominent pastors throughout history you know, each one is a sort of a representative of the shift that was happening at that time period. And you walk through each one of those to kind of explain where we are today. With that in mind, can you explain um, how we got from Thomas Beckett to Augustine and then eventually to Rick Warren? So I'm a little insecure about it and insecure for the very reason that you you mentioned is that the figures then that show up here are kind of, I guess you would say, dominant cultural male yeah. folks. And so I want to be really sensitive to say that they're not the best. Yeah. But uh, whether we like it or not, and maybe we should not, is more than like it, these have been the paradigms, the ideal types, if you will, that have framed for good or for ill the imagination of what it yeah, means to exactly. pastor. So I tell this story that actually starts a little... Um, out of order, I start with Thomas Beckett yeah. and try to tell his story of kind of a medieval person and what it meant to to be a bishop and what it meant to be a pastor at mm-hmm. that time and how that was really an engagement with a very enchanted age. I yeah. mean, to, to such an extent that you know, for years until until Henry VIII came along, the 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 relic was to get to where Thomas Beckett was buried yeah. and you could be healed if you could touch. Uh, his gravestone. Mm-hmm. And then there was even like a whole market of people carrying around vials of Thomas Beckett's blood. But so try to tell that story that's very different for pastors living in a disenchanted age as opposed yeah. to an enchanted age. And there would be no way a pastor in Thomas Beckett's age would have any malaise of meaning. Like you were essentially a magical vampire slayer. I mean, that's yeah. that's an overstatement, but for the most part, you held, you possessed relics and just were in a deeply enchanted realm and, and, and the Eucharist was a powerful, magical thing that there would be no way you could think of yourself as having a malaise of meaninglessness. That's you, right. you could be corrupted in other ways, which of course happened. The, the yeah. corruption of your magic led you to lord over people in, in, in certain dehumanizing ways. But the sense that you could be struck with a meaninglessness to your vocation just could not happen yeah. um, for the pastor in Thomas Beckett's age. So then we go con- chronologically out of order, go back to Augustine, yeah. And just really talk about what it means to be a self. And Taylor has told a lot of, uh, in his book, The Sources of Self, told st- stories about Augustine um, and what it means to be a buffered or a poor self. Yeah. Um, and so try to tell that story, which becomes really hard for pastors because you are, we've had this movement that we've doubled down on since Protestantism, which is to say that divine action, the, the 
where God encounters us is internal. Internally, it's it's, yeah. it's kind of the staged in in the self. But we've also had modern psychology and other things that have then buffered the self, and so we tend to think nothing gets into the self. Um, yeah. So th- even things like you know having a bad day or like waking up and having a terrible headache and feeling off and feeling grumpy with your family. Um, well, when my 14 year old's like that, mm-hmm. I, I rarely to never, I never, I never think, oh, there could be a demon that's got that's me. Right. Or, you know, or I don't hang like um, bird's feet over my daughter's bed as she's going through puberty to make sure like, you know, nothing evil gets inside of her. Yeah. I just don't have that conception. I think there's a buffer between the essence of herself and even kind of in many ways her behavior. Yeah. And that be and so the pastor then has to do an incredibly difficult thing, which you have to proclaim the word or give the sacraments or just even do pastoral care in forms of action that can never actually penetrate the buffer. And or no. you're not allowed to ben- penetrate the buffer. So you yeah. think of Augustine and Beckett being a pastor, like to give you the, U- the Eucharist mm-hmm. was to go right into the very essence and core of who you are, to yeah. give you the words of confession, like in a good Presbyterian liturgy, and now to say unto you that you are forgiven your sins. For the most part, most people, again, mainly middle class people, don't believe that. I mean, they do in a certain sense, but there's a buffer that's like, well, meh. Do I really need forgiveness? Uh, yeah. You, yeah, I'm overstating this a little bit, but I think that there is this kind of sense of where as a buffer. So it's really hard for pastors sometimes to penetrate that buffer. Yeah. And maybe only thing, the only way you can penetrate that buffer is to change people's willful interests. So then the only thing that you can really offer is like to get involved in certain programs because you can't get inside of that buffer or you can only get inside of it when people are willing to open it up. And then that becomes scary and dangerous because you're not sure you're qualified to deal with yeah. all that inner stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah. tell, tell that story. And then and then I think it gets a little bit even more interesting because we go to uh, Henry Ward Beecher mm-hmm. um, and try to tell his story. And Henry Ward Beecher has this big transition coming out of this Puritan Calvinism that Henry Ward Beecher really does away with all... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I We talked Jonathan Edwards. I mean, gosh, yeah. we're in Princeton. We shouldn't... We have to talk about Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards. But this whole transition that happens with Edwards is, is this uh, deep sense of, of your ordinary life really mattering. Mm-hmm. Um, and and mm-hmm. he makes this transition. And especially in colonial America at this time, there was the expectation that the pastor prodded you to live a holy life. Yeah. And that there was really something at stake. And the pastor was the most educated person. I mean, yep. th- this institution itself was in, in Yale, which Ed- Edwards went to, were created to train pastors. That's right. The pastor was the civic leader. There, the uh, Edwards pastor in, in his era had a clear idea of what they were about. They were about keeping the devil in the woods mm-hmm. by helping create a polite society, an ordered society, a disciplined society, where in every part of our ordinary lives, we are obedient to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that changes then with, with Beecher, mm-hmm. where Beecher turns away from this kind of austere being, as Edward's famous sermon, being um, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And Beecher really is the new, he breaks a new mold for what it means to be a pastor. Jonathan Edwards spent 13 hours a day reading and praying. Henry Ward Beecher spent all of his time down at the general store um, yeah. gabbing with people. A whole and, different model. And the, Yes. Yeah. And then we take this jump to... Um, to Rick Warren, which is another 
huge transition in a different model. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, there's a connection between Beecher and Warren. Like Warren's Hawaiian shirt is deeply connected to, to uh, Beecher's straw hat that he would wear. You know, yeah. like this this folk, more kind of folksy, I'm one of you. Yeah. This becomes a big transition where all the big pastors, especially in this country, were East Coast urban. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, after the 60s and the 70s and 80s, it goes it goes California. Yeah. It goes outside of elite kind of trained universities. And what Rick Warren sensed was that the, the markets had been de- deregulated and organized religion was over. Right. And now you could be an entrepreneur and do something significant. And so there's this whole movement that Taylor talks about where a Nova effect occurs. And what he means is that all of a sudden there becomes this new awakening that you can create your own spirituality and organized religion dissipates. And in mm-hmm. the kind of tension between what he calls the age of authenticity and the seeking for your own authenticity and organized religion, the tension like a star creates an explosion of all sorts of third ways. Okay. So, so now you can do yoga and find your spirituality. Now yeah. your religion can be just trying to get your kid into Yale or it can be, or your, your uh, spirituality could be running marathons or whatever. And Rick Warren, intuitively sensed that and created a church for individual purpose seekers. Um, And so he had a a deep kind of genius sensibility of how the secular age had come in this authentic revolution. Um, But here we are. And the problem where I then come back to is this pastor who I mentioned at the beginning who doesn't know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Because where the Malays then lands for him or for her uh, uh, as a pastor is that you then are stuck with a really devious either or. And your in your yeah. either or is that you either need to become the next Rick Warren, or what? Or what? Because what you need to do, I mean, it's a little larger argument in the in in the in the in the book, but you need to essentially create because of the way this has exploded with all these options, people can find meaning in all sorts of other places. So mm-hmm. like just traveling baseball becomes meaning and it creates community and 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 you so you start to feel like your people are distracted from all this stuff so the way you can upend that which Warren does is create essentially a big box one-stop shop church so now everything you can need can happen within the church well to do that you need an incredible amount of resources yes which is why Rick Warren when you read his biography he would always say his dream from the day he started the church with five people he said 20,000 people on 125 acres and the acres was just as important as the people because mm-hmm. the acres creates or the people get you the acres that get you the buildings that get you the resources to create a place where people can essentially find this one stop shop for everything they need in life. Everything they need. Essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're finding daycare there. They're finding other things there so that they're getting their meaning all wrapped up within that. Well, if you're the pastor of a Presbyterian church and, you know, outside of, Gary, Indiana, or yeah. in the suburbs of Chicago, or something. How do you do that? I mean, how do you create a huge one-stop shop for that? You you can't. You, very yeah. few people can. So then you feel like, well, I guess I'm just not talented enough. Or yeah. you, or what you do is you turn on your people and are like, well, darn it, if they were just more committed and didn't get distracted by all these other things, things would be better. Yeah. And so you move back and forth. Be- between these between these things so that that's what I kind of mean by this pastoral malaise and and so I felt like I needed to turn to reminding pastors that they deeply matter mm-hmm. and give them a vision of how it is that even in in, in the midst of the malaise they could see they could experience they could witness to God's action in the world 
you, I mean, part of the book you can get, I mean, you can be overcome by the malaise yourself a little bit the way. It's a classic Andy I mean, Root book where it, it's kind of depressing. It, it, like, yeah, it, yeah. Not really depressing. <laughs> but, but, you know, you can see, I mean, I guess I read it and I can see this happening, right? But you you thankfully um, point out that the secular age doesn't mean that pastors are now useless, mm-hmm. right? So it may be difficult to be one, but we're not useless. And you link the role of the pastor in the secular age to the character of God, whom you describe as a God who arrives. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I think one of, I hope one of my own kind of novel theological contributions has been is to think about God primarily as a minister, mm-hmm. that the God who comes to us is a ministering God. In other words, a God who comes to us is a pastor. Mm-hmm. So whatever it means to be a pastor and how we start to construct our pastoral identity, well, there's something that should take our breath away a little bit, that the very act and being of this God is a God who is a pastor. And so the theological work I draw on and the, the theological dialogue partner in this one is the uh, late Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen, who lived mm-hmm. in this community um, uh, and, and until he died recently. And Jensen makes this really provocative statement that was really helpful f- for me for his own theological reasons. And then I tried to delve into this in, in relation to pastoral identity and more practical theology kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. But Jensen makes this assertion that whoever God is, whoever God might be, God is the one who frees Israel from Egypt and raises Jesus from the dead. So however you start to talk about God, you have to talk about God through God's arriving action. Mm-hmm. That God first arrives, that the the Hebrew and Christian faith is a, the God we know is not the God of the philosophers, really. I mean, we can mm-hmm. learn some good things from the God of the philosophers and, mm-hmm. or from philosophy in general and our Platonic thought all about some of the work the fourth century theologians did around that. But Jensen wants to remind us of this kind of very Bardian actualism mm-hmm. and working it out in his own kind of really unique Lutheran way that really the only data, if you will, which probably isn't the best word, but the only kind of substantive data we can have about who God is is a God who arrives. And my mm-hmm. point is, is that arriving God is always a God who arrives for one thing, to minister, mm-hmm. to save, to set free. And so this God... This God, if if we go with this kind of Bardian sense that we know God's being through God's act, uh, yeah. my sense is that the very act of this God to take it the next step is a God who ministers, who participates for the sake of ministering and ta- taking us to God's God's uh, a, a chest and liberating us and setting us free and giving us giving us life again. Yeah. So that becomes a very different motif, I think, for the pastor to think about what you do having direct connection to the very um, the very economy of God's own being, that God yeah. is a minister. And so even the futility of your people not caring at all, there's a deep sense of resonance with something big and transcendent and, and marvelous that mm-hmm. even, even if you have to preach to three people in a congregation, that you are bending your very being towards God's own act in the world. And that, that, that just becomes deeply transformational. So I think that there's a way that, that pastoral ministry in our ability to, to, to care for another, to share in another person, the depth of their personhood becomes a very witness, a very participation, dare I even say a very sacramental experience of sharing the very being of God. And so being that for people, but then even more so helping people go into the world as those kind of ministers I yeah. think becomes really significant. 
early on in the book, some of Eugene Peterson's work came to mind right away. So I was not surprised to find him at the conclusion of the book. So without giving everything away, can you can you talk about, you know, why you lift him up as a pastor who has sought divine action in a secular age? Yeah, so it is really true that after telling the story of these other five mm-hmm. pastors that in some ways Eugene Peterson becomes the hero at the end of the story. Peterson becomes particularly interesting, so it's probably not quite right to say he's the hero of it, but what he is is someone who really early on, say, closer to the time Warren broke us into the fifth kind of perspective here, mm-hmm. who questioned this whole thing, Yeah, who has pro- prophetically pushed back yeah, and actually knew that this would undercut and dissolve pastoral identity itself. And has been an incredible advocate through his writings for the nobility, the significance, the beauty of being a pastor. So drawing from his memoir, A Pastor, is just this beautiful story of this woman who... He's been he he's fine, kind of falls falls into this trap where we tend to think in the secular age like if I'm going to be a pastor then I have to have certain forms of expertise and so I basically need to become community developer I need to become nonprofit organizer I need to become health health uh, mental health professional and so he starts going to these Tuesdays groups that mm-hmm. um, that the community is putting on and learning all these things with other with other pastors and then this woman in his church a young woman has an episode. And he goes in and he first thinks that he's got to mobilize all of these expertises of these functions and do something for her, Mm -hmm. mental health issue, whatever. And it doesn't go so well. Mm. And kind of broken, he meets her a few months later and she's still... She's still struggling. But this time he knows he can't do what he did before, which is try to solve her problem. And so he, he asks her, what can I do? do for you yeah like essentially like how can i be here for you how can i minister to you and she says this profound line can you teach me to pray and i guess what i'm trying to end the book with which is saying it seems so dull so weak that what a pastor does is hear stories stick around and teach people to pray. Mm-hmm. But if this really is the only way beyond the malaise is to feel like in fear, in doubt, in hope, you're pulled up, you're taken up, you're 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 folded into God's own ministering action in the world. Mm-hmm. And that and that this is a God who acts, not us who makes something and builds yeah. a big yeah. industry or yeah. becomes the great entrepreneurs that do this, but this is a God who acts to save then the best we can do, and Bart in many ways ends his own ecclesiology this way, the best we can do is to pray. And the best we can do seems to reduce it. That is everything. That's all of it. Thanks, Andy. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds, and by Sherry Osteen. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.